Good evening and welcome. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library Central. And we're very pleased to have all of you here this evening for a very special edition of our Writers Live series. Our special guest tonight has written a remarkable book that is very timely during this presidential election year. As you know, the political climate in this country is, I would have to say, churning. Issues on a national and even state level have galvanized all parts of the political spectrum. In fact, I changed that to say all parts because at first it said both sides. So we have more than one side in a lot of these things. The political debate during this election is really fueling up. And that's why we're so honored and pleased to have here tonight a wonderful author and historian with her new book, Delirium, How the Sexual Counter-Revolution is Polarizing America, Miss Nancy Cohen. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, and also election year, um, you should know that Nancy feels like family to us here at the Pratt because of her wonderful mother, Miss Sue Cohen, who is a great supporter of the library with her daughter, Janet. So thank you, Sue. She also gave me permission to plug quickly a few other programs that are coming up that are going to be part of this continuing discussion. Um, tomorrow night at 6.30, as part of our Shapiro Lecture Series, we'll present Life and Loss in the Shadow of the Holocaust, a Jewish Family's Untold Story. And that promises to be a very gripping presentation. And on March 8th, we're really going to get it going because MSNBC's Chris Matthews will be here discussing his new book, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero. And then Steve Jobs' um, biographer, Walter Isaacson, will be here as part of the City Lit Festival on April 14th. And then to round it all off, we thought, what better thing to do is to save the date for former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. He'll be here on May the 10th discussing her new book. So if you get a chance, please join us for those because we are really delighted. We also are delighted to have really an embarrassment of riches tonight. We're honored to not only have one special guest, but two. Joining Nancy Cohen in conversation about her book is another great supporter of the Pratt Library. You know him as the president of Goucher College, and he's a respected international journalist and educator He's also agreed to be somewhat of a mentor to me, and he's previously served as the director of Voice of America and is an award-winning national public radio host. So please welcome tonight, Goucher President Sandy Unger and author and historian Nancy Cohen. We're going to use these handheld microphones, and I think, uh, Nancy, you want to try yours? Yes, it is working. Thank you, Dr. Everyone Hayden. Everyone can hear us. Carla, thank you very much. The fact is that you're a mentor to me, not me a mentor to you. So let's get that straight from the beginning. Um, I'm delighted to be here tonight with Nancy Cohen and, and her fascinating book. And um, we're going to get right into it rather than uh, 
have uh, any introductory talk and, and just start having our conversation. And then uh, I, I don't actually didn't ask about this, but I hope uh, that we'll leave some time for you to ask questions and make comments as well. I assume that's okay with That'd you. That'd be great. We didn't discuss this actually, but yes, we'll, we will definitely do that. Okay. So um, here you are, a distinguished historian um, and an analyst of American politics, and I want to know how you chose this topic. What, 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 I mean, it, did you wake up one day and said, I've got it, now I understand what's happened in this country, or? Well, honestly, yes. I did wake up one day <laughs> and have an epiphany. Like Archimedes. Oh, yes. Uh, so the idea first came to me during the 2008 election when there was the conflict in the Democratic side between <coughs> Hillary and Obama, and a lot of the stuff about women was coming up. And then a little bit later, when Sarah, Sarah Palin arose, and the many men were saying, oh, she's got the women's vote, while many women were saying, what are you talking about? So I started thinking about looking at the craziness of American politics and trying to understand what had happened. And as a historian, you sometimes ask very simple questions. How did we get here? And so I started doing reading and looking back and thought, you know, we've had these really, really profound changes over the last 40 years in family life, in sexuality, in relations between men and women, the, you know, rise of the gay rights movement and feminism. And I thought, well, clearly these changes have sparked a reaction. And what I ultimately came to is this idea that they sparked a counter-revolution, a sexual counter-revolution. You used the term that Sarah Palin arose, which I think oh. is interesting. <laughs> um, you didn't say she emerged. Uh, you, you said she arose. And um, I, think, I think you feel that Sarah Palin is representative of something that was happening in this country for a long period of time. And I, I wonder if you would explain that. And, and um, I'm intrigued by your concept of a shadow movement that, that existed over a long period of time. Yes, so what I discovered in doing research is that the movement on the right actually started with women in the early 70s who were outraged by the sexual revolution and feminism and they started organizing against the Equal Rights Amendment. And then they moved on from that, and they organized against federally funded childcare. And then they moved on from that, and they organized to roll back gay civil rights. And this all started kind of under the radar, when the rest of the country was looking at busing fights in the North, um, Watergate, et cetera, these women were organizing in their communities. They were organizing in local Republican Party committees to turn the Republican Party to the right, specifically on what we today call the social issues, on women's rights and gay rights. And Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman actually got their start in these local movements. Michelle Bachman back in the late 70s, and Palin later, she's younger, in the late 80s. So uh, who were these women who, who were part of this sort of shadow movement? And I suspect there aren't any of them in the room tonight. Um, and 
I mean, I, the name that comes into my mind is Phyllis Schlafly. Is she too old to have been a part of this? No, Phyllis Schlafly was the master organizer mm -hmm. of this movement. But as some of you will know, she had been organizing on the right of the Republican Party in the 50s and 60s. And she lighted on uh, equal rights as an issue in 72. She had very few followers at the time, but she struck a chord with fundamentalists, Protestant fundamentalist women, who take the Bible literally, which says that women should be submissive to their husbands. Michelle Bachman says she... Yes, Michelle Bachman actually said this just five years ago, not in 1972. And so these women started organizing themselves in their churches, but Schlafly played the role of teaching them how to do TV, teaching them how to lobby their state legislatures. And so she formed a very profitable alliance with them. But Profitable it, politically. Profitable politically. No, Although not. I believe she did pretty well financially, eventually as well. Yes, though I think her motivations were right. ideological right. more than financial. Right. Is she still alive, Phil Schlafly? She you? is. And this year she published another anti-feminist book. Amazing. <laughs> and she's still writing her she's still writing her newsletters and I actually quote a couple of them in later chapters of the book. Uh, you know, she was active this summer, I believe, in the the first uh, eruption of this anti-birth control uh, movement on the right. People were talking about right. it in August. Well, that's something I'd really like to uh, focus on. Um, it, it, it really, if we were to fall asleep Rip Van Winkle-like, and wake up, I mean, if we were to have fallen asleep 20 years ago, Rip Van Winkle-like, and, and wake up today, um, I, I don't know who would predict that there would be not an anti-abortion movement, but an anti-birth control movement. That is really um, astonishing. It is appalling, and it seems astonishing but if you know the history of the shadow movement, it's not surprising at all. Because it wasn't abortion that got them active, it was this reaction against these changes in sexuality. And the pill is what enabled these changes and really changed, you know, helped a lot of changes to the family have happened in the last 40 years. But part of it is that women have been freed sexually and to kind of live their own lives outside of the traditional family. But to say, to be a woman and say you're against birth control is to say either that you will have a certain number of children and then promise never to have sex again or to leave it in the hands of whoever it is you believe is controlling your life, and say you're prepared to have an unlimited number of children. I mean, aren't those the only two options if you're a woman and you're against birth control? I would say so, yes. And what we see is that this group seems very powerful because the press is covering it and they seem to have all the support behind them, but they really are about 15 to 20% of the population. Even that, many, that, that much? Well, in terms of the anti-birth control, they're probably not that much. We're talking, 
you know, in the activist level, we're maybe talking to 3% who are very talented at making noise and mm -hmm. making issues out of this. I, I had an argument with a friend about this the other day, um, and I found myself saying, but conservative people have sex too. I mean, it, this is not, um, it's not something that just liberals do. And so I, I just, I find it, um, I, mean, I mean, you heard what this financial supporter of, of Rick Santorum said. Yes, the bear aspirin. Right. Yes. A, a bear aspirin. Have all of you heard this? Yeah. Bear so, aspirin between the knees. Yes. It? So uh, the, Santorum's biggest financial supporter was being interviewed on, by Andrea Mitchell. And he said, what's the big deal about birth control? It's not even that expensive. In my age, the girls just put a bare aspirin between their knees. And that was it. OK, so. So, so I, I mean. What does that mean? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. Uh, yes, so I think, look, about half of the Republican Party are these social conservatives, people I call sexual fundamentalism, sexual fundamentalists, because that seems to be what unites them. They're from different religious groups, Mormons and evangelicals who don't necessarily like each other, but they work together politically. But a good half of the Republican Party are not social conservatives. They're just conservatives on whether it's foreign policy or economics, but they have allowed the party to, as we see with this recent effusion, they've allowed the party to be hijacked by people I would say they probably don't agree with. I mean, there used to be a category of people, there used to be moderate Republicans, and there even used to be people called liberal Republicans. Um, Senator Mathias, most people in the room remember Senator Mathias from Maryland. He was regarded as a liberal Republican and had a lot of alliances of convenience with Democrats on all sorts of issues. So uh, what happened to the heirs of people like Mac Mathias within the Republican Party? And are they anywhere to be found or identified now? Are they now independents or? Good question. Let's start with the voters who put people sure. like that in office. When the Republican Party in 1992 kind of took a very respectable moderate, George H.W. Bush, down this rabbit hole of holy war at his convention, you know, when Pat Robertson gets up and they declare a war against the Clintons and they declare a war against feminism and say they have to take the country back for God. In that election, one out of six Republicans defected from Bush over the issue of abortion. And so, and many of them were women, many of them were professionals, and main, many of them were mainline Protestants. So the Democratic Party has picked up millions of these liberal and moderate Republicans. They became Democrats, as far as you they can They started tell. voting Democratic. Right. They don't necessarily identify as Democratic. They might identify as independent and lean Democratic. And so particularly among, I, there hasn't been that much study on it, but I think a lot of women Democrats, say someone like Gabby Giffords, who's fairly centrist on economic issues, and I don't know her family history enough, but a lot of women who are running for office as Democrats and winning office 
in another age, probably would have been Republicans, because Republicans, the Republican Party was the party of women's rights and personal freedom and, uh, you know, pro-choice. So and, I, and then the, the politicians, a number of them have just been voted out of office. They've been primaried. And we right. saw that particularly in the 2010 midterms when a lot of moderates who look like they, you know, might be presidential contenders. Right lost in primaries to Tea Party Republicans. And, and it's interesting, they don't get a lot of publicity, but there are some former Republican members of Congress who were moderates, who have been supportive of President Obama. I mean, it's, it, it's quite, I know of one from Illinois, for example, who was regarded as a sort of mainstream moderate Republican congressman and campaigned for Barack Obama in 2008. Right, right, well you have Colin, Colin Powell right That's before right. the election, saying that Sarah Palin was the final straw for him, that the party, and he mentioned in that interview that he was very concerned about what would happen to the Supreme Court for on women's issues right. if McCain won. So, so back to the main yeah. focus of your argument, and um, I'm, I'm really uh, curious of, uh, about how the Republican Party allowed itself, evolved to a point where they're, I mean, it, you don't have to dig very deeply to interpret some of the things that people are saying as meaning that they are opposed to birth control. And I, I, I just find that in the year 2012, in the United States of America, et cetera, et cetera, how can you have the, presumably the leadership of a major political party waging a war on birth control? That's an excellent question. <laughs> so the answer is that they have become captive to the biggest block in their voting base. And the 2010 elections taught them that they couldn't defy them. So the social conservatives, the sexual fundamentalists, the religious right, however you want to call them, really made all the candidates sign off before the election even started. Now voters say, for example, that the economy is the most important issue to them, and Republican voters still say the, the economy is the most important issue to them in the 2012 election, but that's because even someone like Mitt Romney has signed off on the issues of abortion and, and gay rights. So this happened because... Just to interrupt you there, you, you argue that Mitt Romney is a profoundly conservative right-wing person, and I, I hope we'll come back to that. Yes, I just want to... we'll, we'll hold that for now. Right. So this happened because uh, these, uh, the religious right, the sexual fundamentalists, were really brilliant political organizers in the Republican Party. They, you know, they go into county conventions and they introduce amendments and platform planks such as we should quarantine everyone with HIV. Okay, this has happened over and over again at the county level at, in Republican parties. Now the fact is most people don't want to spend their time at party conventions, you know, on the county level. So they have the advantage of really having always been focused on the electoral system and having gained the majority in many state Republican parties, particularly in the South, 
and the Southwest in Bible Belt states. This isn't necessarily true. You know, there, there are very powerful Christian right wings in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa. That's one of the reasons, you know, Santorum won some of those states is because they have a history of these people organizing within the Republican Party. Is it correct to assume that there's a great deal of hypocrisy among these people? That they are advocating what people should do, but not doing those things themselves? Might you be talking about Newt Gingrich? For example. <laughs> Just for example. And do you know that not only has Newt Gingrich changed his wife three times, he's changed his religion three times as well? And why not? But. It, yes. I mean, it seems to me that in public life, eventually, if you, if you advocate something that you don't follow yourself for a certain period of time, you're going to get tripped up on it. I mean, I, I just don't see how anybody uh, could advocate, could, could, could say that people should not, I mean, in effect, they're saying that people, and especially poor people, should not use birth control. But we know they are using birth control themselves, or at least we, we assume they are. Maybe they're not. Well, Santorum is not. And he How is, do you he, know for sure, Nancy? He's actually made it clear publicly that he is personally opposed to birth control, and they have many children. Yes, they do. <laughs> I, I've been working on this book you know, for almost two years, and I cannot explain the hypocrisy. And I, the only way I can explain that the voters allow them to get away with it is they keep uh, kind of going to confession, <laughs> right? Saying, I have sinned, I know it, I, I will reform. So no more and birth that, control, right? Yeah. I think they're going to discover that they've gone off the cliff mm -hmm. with this on birth control. Um, Romney is, tr uh, you know, just to get into the weeds a little bit, the way he's trying to explain it is that he is calling birth control abortive pills. And this is also something that is very prevalent on the far right, is that they look at the birth control pill as abortion, which it is not, no medical specialist thinks this is true, but they, you know, like they have their own climate scientists, they have their own doctors. So, and they treat uh, the morning after pill, which is used in cases of rape, as equivalent of abortion too. So they're There is a difference between those. Uh, they're two. actually just different doses. Is that right? Yes. I talked to a nurse about this recently to just check that this is actually the case. Huh. It's just a... Uh, different dose of the same um, compound mm -hmm. of the pill. And it does not work as abortion. It works to prevent conception. So they're trying to make this sound like it's an abortion because they have a slightly better chance of getting it across if it's about abortion. They try to make it sound like it's about religious liberty, which I think is a phony argument, which we can go into later. So. They're, the candidates are so um, concerned with 
satisfying the base that they they're clearly willing to say anything now and and this base um, I mean do they know what they're doing do they know that this base is you know when dropped into water will expand for the fall election I mean is it is there really some reason to believe that they can win with these arguments they cannot win with these arguments when they overreach Republicans do not win you know, we saw that in 98 after they overreached with impeachment. We saw it in 96 when they overreached after Gingrich, Gingrich's rule in the House. And we saw it in 2006 with Bush's overreach. The problem is that when the base has won a big election like they did in 2010, which they won because there was very low turnout, right. and, they, and they because, demand purity. And I, don't you think one of the reasons they also won in 2010 is the, the first two years of the Obama administration were, in some respects, catastrophic legislatively, politically. The president just did not establish momentum in those first two years, with one or two exceptions. Yes, I, th I think that on that score, that a lot of people who had supported Obama, namely 40 million people, did not show up in 2010 who had voted in 2008. Right. And I do think that the people who really thought that there would be major change were very disappointed. The, the polling on the people that did show up mm -hmm. for 2010 shows that they were highly active Republican activists. They had voted overwhelmingly for McCain. They were very conservative. Mm -hmm. They were older. They were whiter. They were wealthier. It was, they had a sense that if they did not act now, they were going to lose the war that they feel that they are in. And so they believe they can do it again and, and have to fight harder and, and it will work. Yes, and that the problem is that their presidents haven't been conservative enough. Mm -hmm. And so this will not work in the general election. It's part of the reason why... You heard it here, prediction of the uh, okay. general election. <laughs> I don't think it will work in the general election. I don't if, either, but... If Santorum is the nominee. Now, Romney was trying to run a campaign on the economy for most of the election. He kept trying not to be dragged into it, but as he is losing these primaries, he has had to go to the base too. And you know that his campaign team is not happy about that because he's leaving a record that will follow him Oh, into sure. His campaign well, I mean, whoever is the nominee, the president could save a lot of money by just running their commercials about each other when the, when the time comes. Um, let, let's take a, a, a diversion for a moment, talk about how the Democrats, how the National Democratic Party, and um, perhaps especially the Congressional Democratic Party, have handled this sexual counter-revolution if we if we accept your premise that that's at least one way of interpreting the last 50 years, I think you say, approximately 50 right, years. Right, right, about 40 years. And yes, we can get into this. I think it's one of the major <coughs> forces fueling our political polarization yes. and our political dysfunction. So the Democrats have had their own sexual counter-revolution, and it started in the early 70s, too, when older... Uh, very powerful men in the party who were liberal on lots of things but weren't liberal on these new cultural issues. And there was a reaction within the party to McGovern's election. 
And what happened is... McGovern's selection is the candidate. McGovern's selection is the candidate and then landslide defeat to the 1972 election, excuse me. And they blame the defeat on women and feminists and gays and young people who for the first time had been active in the party because it was the first time there was a real primary election that was open to everybody. And was that and, the first time that 18-year-olds voted? Was that Yes, in that was the first yeah. time 18-year-olds voted. And so they blame them. And even though it wasn't true that McGovern lost for those reasons, it became kind of conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party And you all have heard this, that the social issues are losing issues, and if Democrats were just stay true to New Deal economics, to their economic liberalism, they would win. That they lose these elections because middle America is conservative. Now, that's just bunk. The polling, the election studies Mm -hmm. don't support it. But what happens is every time Democrats lose, they kind of go into this collective panic And they come back to that argument that if only they run away from the people that like them the most, they will win these other people who haven't liked them since the Civil Rights Revolution, basically. They're trying to woo white men who are, you know, in the South, it started over racial issues. In the North, race, and also on economics. White men soured on democratic economics, not on, they're actually as pro-choice as women are, they are pretty culturally progressive, they don't like the far-right religious program. Uh, That quote from George Meany, when he analyzed the results of the 1972 election, do you want to, uh, do you have it memorized? I have this one memorized. So George Meany, who was the head of the AFL-CIO for... Big Democrat. Big Democrat helped elect Roosevelt, was a big supporter of the black civil rights movement, critical force in passing Medicare, said about the Democratic Convention and McGovern, said the Democratic Party has been taken over by boys who want to marry boys, girls who want to marry girls, abortionists, and jacks who look like Jills and smell like Johns. And it was the only time in the twentieth century, <laughs> only time in the twentieth century, that organized labor did not formally support the Democratic candidate. He actively worked. Yeah, he, he went golfing with Richard Nixon, and wouldn't even take George McGovern's phone calls. So, um, is that a is that a symbol of what happened to the Democrats? In the, in the period after 1972? Yes, it's a symbol. They had a mini inner civil war over these cultural questions. And the people who felt the way Meany did actually were quite old and, you know, they died and the Democratic Party, you know, became the Progressive Party. It is the Progressive Party. But their analysis of why Democrats lost has what has been preserved. And that legacy keeps going. I mean, when we heard after the 2004 election that Democrats lost on values, it was the same argument. And again, the numbers, the statistics, the polling doesn't support that argument. But if it gets repeated often enough, it it gets accepted 
as an argument. Exactly. Um, there are a couple other areas I, I really want us to explore, and I do want us to get back to George Romney before, before we finish, but um, I wonder what you think about how this looks, this, this counter-revolution, this thing happening in America, how it looks in the international context. Because here is a country that asserts its leadership in the world, the exceptional nation uh, like none other, and of course, big, big Newt Gingrich says he, he's making a big thing about exceptionalism. I'm not. I'm a little surprised he thinks that would resonate with the voters to talk about American exceptionalism, but he does. Um, I, I just can't help but wonder how it looks, even in countries ruled or run at the moment by fairly conservative coalitions. I mean, I wonder how Angela Merkel in Germany, for example, analyzes this development. It does not look good. So I've actually... That was a leading question. <laughs> I've, I've actually you know, fielded a lot of interviews in the last week or two from international journalists who essentially start off with, why have you all gone so crazy? And so I then proceed to defend. What do you tell them? I defend my country, and I say most of us are not like this. And I kind of cite some of the statistics. And as I said, about 15 to 20% of the country is voting this way. And it's a 2% of activists that are pushing them this far. Mm-hmm. You know, America is the only advanced nation with such a powerful fundamentalist religious movement. And the rest of the advanced countries don't have it, so they haven't had the same kind of reaction, the same kind of counter-revolution to all of these cultural changes all of us have experienced mm-hmm. over the last 40 years. As I was trying to think about um, any international parallels to any of this, the only example I could come up with in my mind were some uh, relatively small African countries which have made homosexuality illegal and have jailed people and tried them and so on. It's not exactly the same thing, but they're the only things I could think of that are parallels. Yes, I think there's some similar things going on in some of the smaller Central American uh-huh. countries too. The cases in Africa have often been um, sparked by American missionaries going there uh. and suggesting anti-gay legislation to them. It's just horrific, you know, because these are countries talking about death penalty for gay people. So if I mean. Uh, it's interesting to speculate what would happen if one of these Republican candidates were to be elected. Um, I suspect it would be pretty hard to enact a legislative agenda that carried out some, I mean, to, to outlaw birth control, I, think, I don't think it's going to happen. But imagine a President Santorum, if you'll excuse the expression, um, meeting with international leaders and, and uh, believing that these you know, social issues are so important to American identity. Yes, it's hard to imagine a President Santorum meeting with any international leader, but it's actually not difficult, unfortunately, to imagine birth control being outlawed. And this is how it would happen. Oh, that, tell us that. So 
Uh, Roe v. Wade is based on the right to privacy, which was articulated in Griswold versus Connecticut, which was actually the case where the Supreme Court ruled that states could not outlaw birth control. Now, you might think, why Written would... by Justice Douglas, I think, Griswold. Yes. Yeah, You're probably better so. at that than, than me. And people were actually being jailed for talking about and selling birth control in the 1960s. All right? In Connecticut. In Connecticut, and then in Massachusetts. One man was in prison under the Crimes Against Chastity statute. And this was like 1967. And so Romney and Santorum have both promised to appoint justices that will overturn Roe and when they talk about it, they talk about the right to privacy. And what they're really talking about is not just overturning Roe, they're overturning Griswold. Once Griswold is overturned, any state can pass a law against birth control. And then you take in this ideal of life begins at conception, and you have these people who believe that the birth control pill and the IUD and the morning after pill are abortion. And there you have the pill and the IUD starting to be outlawed on the state level. I actually do not think this is a far-fetched wow. view. Yes. And, I'm and you sorry, think this it is... could happen all around the country? I mean, would... No, no, no. It would only ha happen in the most conservative states. However, <coughs> it only requires a tiny minority of voters to be very active because sure. people don't pay that much attention to state politics. And do you think... It would be, I mean, can you imagine a situation in which this would also be enforced? And we have many laws we don't enforce because those laws make us feel good. But do you think... Uh, well, it would be enforced to the extent that something like 7 million American yeah. women get their birth control through uh, the Title X family planning program, which Romney has promised to abolish. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the birth control is relatively expensive. It costs between $500 and $1,000 a year for, you know, in this economy with people struggling. For birth control pills. For birth control. And the statistics are that about half of the unplanned preg uh, pregnancies in the country are because people have foregone birth control because they can't afford it. In the wealthiest country in the world. Yes. I want to turn to one other uh, subject, which is um, whether your premise that one can explain the political developments of the last 40 or 50 or 30 years through a sexual counter-revolution, uh, could, could one make an argument that there are other forces that were just as important? And, and I know you say that you don't argue, and I, I, I know you say you don't argue this is the only factor and that you, if, if, to, to accept it and believe it, you, have, you don't say you have to out rule out other factors. But for example, um, could you, two things occurred to me. One would be, um, could you say that economics and um, the kind of deterioration of the middle class is an equally powerful explanation for some of the political developments in the country. Or, not to ask too long a question, or could you say that something like, um, you know, uh, foreign policy is not usually a big issue in campaigns, but the Vietnam War and, and uh, 
that it might not, you know, some of the, the backlash, the protest movements, and then the backlash against the protest movement and so on. Could, could you not make an equally valid argument that those are things that happened in the last 30, 40 years that have had as much of an influence as the sexual counter-revolution? The short answer is yes. And, but you owe me more than that after that I long know, question. I know. So I think there are a few prime forces. I think race, I do think economics, I do think when we're in times of war, war is the dominant driver of a particular election. So I wrote this book because from my listening to our politics, participating in our politics, and seeing what people were saying, this was a kind of unknown factor. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to, some of the things that we've experienced couldn't be explained. You know, you couldn't explain Clinton's impeachment by any of this. You couldn't explain the current birth control <coughs> eruption by anything else. So I do think there's, you know, it's, there's chronological issues. So I do think in the 70, 60s and 70s, race and the Vietnam War were dominant. Mm -hmm. And, but at a certain point, particularly in the 90s and the last decade, is when I think the sexual counter-revolution has really taken on this very influential role because of its influence in moving the Republican Party to the right. And the book goes back to the 70s to explain where it came from, but I don't think it was the most important driver of politics initially when it first arose. So is it, um, you know, how does it, how does it interplay with some of these other issues? I think that is an interesting thing to try to explore. Hmm. So let's take some recent politics. So it interplays with the Tea Party, mm -hmm. for example. So the Tea Party presented itself as primarily concerned about personal freedom and the budget and about uh, you know, taking America back. And so the religious right really did align with the kind of small percentage of people who are libertarian on economics. Mm -hmm. And so there was a kind of alliance of convenience. Um, very disreputably, the Tea Party allowed itself to be infiltrated by the far-right racist fringe. Mm -hmm. And those were the people holding up those despicable signs at the various protests against Obama. Um, but they, that isn't really the way most of those people think. I don't think the religious right is really driven by racism at all, particularly. So it interplays in the coalitions that people, mm -hmm. that people make. And the kind of... So, so in other words, um, some of the persistent anti-war movements could be seen as a kind of part of the deterioration of patriotism and uh, along with the other with with the sexual revolution that they would, yes, they would yes. go and, hand in hand yes and part and then on the other side on the democratic side the people who are against war tend to be liberal on the social right. issues so you have a kind of ideological polarization right. on both sides right. on the a lot of these issues so let's uh, come to this year's presidential campaign. And uh, there's still, well, I guess officially there are four Republican candidates standing, if you include Ron Paul. 
but I think he really is in a, um, ever since we had him to Goucher a few years ago, I really think he is coming from another place. And, or another uh, planet. Uh, yeah. Um, so looking at uh, Romney, Gingrich, and Santorum, and they're really quite surprising kind of place where they are with respect. I mean, very few people predicted this just a few months ago. Uh, I mean, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I don't know anybody who thought that Rick Santorum had a, had a serious prospect. So um, how do you see this playing out, and what would be the role of the sexual counter-revolution if each of these people were to be the Republican candidate for president? So I do think we are in a moment where it is the sexual fundamentalists who are really driving the race to the far right among the candidates. And, you know, the Tea Party, the Tea Party is supporting Santorum, which I think is a, you know, good case of how they aren't freedom-loving, you know, fiscal conservatives, that they're really <coughs> driven by these social issues. So frankly, there's really, there's a difference in style between the three of them, but there will not be any difference in policy. There's less and less difference, I think, in, um, among them as time has gone on. Yeah. And so someone like Santorum, I think, I think Gingrich is over. I think. Do you? Yeah, I do. I think what happened is people forgot what he did in the 90s, and once they were reminded, they're like, hmm. I don't think so. And so, you know, Santorum doesn't have that kind of personal baggage. You know, he's bringing these, you know, absolutely insane ideals, like there shouldn't be public education in America. But he is solid as far as they're concerned. So I think that if Romney is the nominee, although they don't love him now, the Republican base will rally because they dislike Obama even more. And I think if Santorum is the nominee, they will be very, very passionate for his candidacy, but it will clearly motivate lots of other people to come out who may have been thinking about sitting out the election. So turnout is going to be everything. I, I mean, Santorum makes Alf Landon look like uh, somebody that... We I mean, it, it could be an election like the election in which Alf Landon lost to Roosevelt. It was 36, right? 1936? I think so. Yeah. 32 was Hoover. Yeah, 36. Uh, yeah. Um, but Romney uh, could really challenge yes, he could be Barack Obama. Yes. And if he had gotten through this primary without saying some of the things he said, I think he could have... I mean, remember a month ago when everybody was saying Romney was a moderate? So he said he's a severe conservative, yeah. was his answer. He clearly needs an English teacher. Right, right. Um, so will these ideas, uh, I mean, I, 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 I think um, thus far you leave me pretty pessimistic. I mean, how, how, does, how yeah. does this change? How does the counter-revolution, does it fizzle out? Does it get... Well, it is, it is fizzling out because the people still supporting it are quite old and demographically unrepresentative of the country. Uh, but 
as I said, they're very passionate about politics and very good at political organizing. It could actually end fairly easily by people staying engaged and informed and exposing this between elections and then turning out to vote in every election. The problem in America is lots of people don't vote in midterm elections. And so every couple years, we trade in our Congress for people that, you know, in this case, just say no. Right? And so if we had substantial turnout in midterm elections, you would see more continuity that reflects mainstream America, which is, you know, people don't want to go backwards on women's rights. People, you know, want to be fair toward gay Americans. There's now a majority in, in support of gay marriage. It's, you know, growing exponentially every year. And so I really do think that most of America doesn't want this, doesn't like this, and disagrees with it, but has kind of tuned out a little bit to politics, and well, we can't afford to do that. If the only hope is better turnout in midterm elections, I'm not very hopeful. Well, there, <laughs> better turnout in presidential elections, ah, too. So right. I do think that a good turnout in this election will hold it at bay. And then, you know, to kind of down the road, it is some people deciding to take back the Republican Party for sanity. Right. Um, I, I wanted to ask you to read a little bit from the introduction to your book, but before we do that, I just, one other thing, maybe we'll use the reading as a, a sort of transition to take questions from people. But before, I, 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 somehow we elided over Bill Clinton and, and how, um, in your view, I think he came to represent the sexual revolution in, in some ways. Is that a, is that a fair... <laughs> poor, poor Bill. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair characterization of your view? Yes, and because his opponents wanted to um, paint him that way. Right. He was actually, I mean, his, his dalliances were actually quite old-fashioned, you know, kind of madman style, not new sexual revolution, you know. We, you know, his, you know, his extramarital affairs, right? That was, right. you know, men have been doing this for centuries, eons. Well, women so, have too. Some, uh, women, less, some women have less, less but yes. uh, some women have. Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, so part of what happened to uh, Bill is that people might not remember this. Hillary was the first working mother to be first lady. And so a lot of the attacks on the Clinton administration were this you know, outrage that um, Hillary would be a working mother within the White House. And so the anti-feminism came together with the kind of you know, sexual puritanicalism mm -hmm. um, with a, you know, kind of deadly force. I'm just going back in my mind to see if I could think of any other first lady who had had a career before Hillary Clinton, and I can't, I can't come up with one. No. So that, that no. was a factor. Yeah. And, and so you think that um, so, you know, contributed Clinton to was, Yeah, and Clinton... Uh, did something in his election and in the early administration where he really stood on principle on women's rights and gay rights. You know, the first day he came into office, right. he overturned the <coughs> Bush and Reagan administration anti-abortion policies. He passed the um, Protection of Clinic Acts when, you know, people were bombing clinics and murdering people who worked in abortion clinics. And he didn't do it on the timing that he wanted, but 
you know, the don't ask, don't tell policy was originally, you know, designed to let gays and lesbians serve openly in the right. military, and he was slapped down by Colin Powell and the other military leaders. So part of it was that Clinton did really come in on a very culturally progressive platform and really fulfilled those promises very quickly. And it really terrified the religious right. They just were absolutely committed to you know, discrediting him as a legitimate president and trying to get him out of office. It, it's, it's interesting, really, to think back when you just gave that brief litany of things he did. A lot of them really related to the themes you're talking about. In directly or indirectly. Right. Well, I think that Clinton, unlike a lot of Democrats, understood that you can have, you know, kind of your, you can be strong on economic issues. I actually think he was more centrist on the economic mm -hmm. issues. And he saw that this was a winning, a winning strategy. And I think it's what he truly believed. You know, he really is a committed feminist. He, he did uh, make a lot of compromises on economic yes. issues. Yes. As, as time went on, especially. Yeah. Well, the, once the, the welfare reform. Yes, and, once the, re, you know, and he did some things under the guidance of Dick Morris that, you know, so right. he came into office thinking, you know, this idea that we lose by being socially liberal is wrong. And then as soon as he lost, he listened to everybody who said, <laughs> That's right. Oh, the problem was. As soon as he lost in 94. Yes, lost, exactly. As soon as Congress. Lost, lost yeah. control of Congress. Right, right. So that was a different. Um, of course, some would argue that. He had himself to blame for some of. Yes, what every happened. every president has their tragic flaw. Right, right. Um, well, let's ask you to read a little bit uh, from. I think you were going to read from the introduction to the book. Um, s since. Can you do that holding the microphone as well? Let's see. And. People may want to think about questions or comments they may have. And uh, I don't think we have floor microphones, so I'll repeat. Oh, there is one there? Oh, yes, there is. Thank you. Hello, Senator. You know, the, uh, the opening lines of the book start with talking about birth control. But since we've talked about it so much, I'm going to kind of read a different section okay. and follow up on the Democrats. Very important skill for an author to be able to find exactly what she's looking for in a newly published book. Okay, so this is uh, from a chapter on the 2004 election and Bush's second term. And this is the moment that uh, Kerry has lost the election. So. As late returns from Ohio showed Bush with the popular vote majority that eluded him before, the question on everybody's mind was, what had carried Bush over the edge? Bush won, according to the exit poll, because of his appeal to values voters. When voters were asked which one issue mattered most in deciding how you voted for president, more chose moral values than any other issue. And 80% of those answering moral values voted for Bush. The revelation about America's morality-based voting seemed to provide the key to deciphering the striking map of a disunited country broadcast on every channel. The map showed the lands of the amber waves of grain, the purple mountains majestied, and the fruited plains bathed in red. 
Isolated on the edges of the nation, hugging the oceans and the Great Lakes, Democrats clustered in slivers of land covered, colored blue. The citizens of the blue states looked on in dismay at the hostile, uncrossable land as if they had woken one morning in a time-warped alternative universe in which the Southern Confederacy had won the Civil War. It was but a short leap of logic from the exit poll reports to the conclusion that more Americans were deeply religious and more religious Americans preferred the moralistic GOP. Can the Democrats ever connect with the country's cultural majority, Chris Matthews asked on his cable TV show. California Senator Dianne Feinstein blamed the defeat on San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, who had briefly made gay marriage legal in a city. A Los Angeles Times editorial, editorial bluntly concluded that voters don't believe that Democrats share their values. Politicians, pundits, and scholars of all partisan persuasions declared that the GOP would be in power for at least a generation. Americans, so they agreed, were a conservative people, governed by a president and a party which faithfully embodied their heartfelt values. The few voices of reason were ignored in the flight to the old nostrums. E.J. Dion, who had wised up to Bush's stealthy ways earlier than most, stated bluntly and presciently in his first column after the 2004 election, ours is not a right-wing country. An alternative majority is out there waiting to be waiting to be born. For anyone who cared to examine the matter objectively, the evidence was clear that Kerry had lost on the issues of war, terrorism, and national security. Why the confusion then about so-called moral values? Because the 2004 exit poll was flawed. And then I go on to show the ways in which it was flawed and how everybody has proved that, but this idea still persists. So that is to say, look how quickly things change. Now, um, in 2008, things ch th seemed to change. There was wild optimism at that point that things had turned back around. Um, I suggested a couple reasons before why, why things went, went bad, but how does that fit into your, your thesis, that what happened between 08 and 10? Well, that progressive majority waiting to be born was born in 2008 for Obama's election. And the combination of the economic crisis and all, you know, all the kinds of crises Obama dealt with came in. But what had happened when Democrats convinced themselves that they lost on values, they recruited a lot of very conservative candidates. And so when Democrats are in power, they tend to be paralyzed by their divisions and have a hard time getting things done. And then when they get thrown out of power, often for not getting things enough done, they overreact. So that's the pattern we've seen in the last right. couple of years. That's what's been happening. So are there some comments or questions from the audience? There is a microphone. Will you identify yourself, please? Uh, yes, my name is June O'Connell. I live here in downtown Baltimore. Um, first, as a lapsed Catholic, I would like to just make sure you realize that the Catholic Church has always opposed birth control, always supported abstinence, and it's grounds for annulment. The, uh, it's the bishops and the cardinals, it's not your local parish church right. or priest, but the fact is that the hierarchy has always said that birth control in any form is a sin, regrettably. But they're not new on this. No, but it's good like, to be reminded of that. 
my question to you is actually, um, let us just say that there's an age gap between you and I. And um, I, it's my recollection that I, I was intrigued that you cited Griswold. And not only was Griswold about birth control for married couples, but I believe um, the organization that supported that litigation was Planned Parenthood. That's where it got that's its right. name. Yes, that is right. That's where it got its chops. And so my question to you is, um, how do you see the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings as understanding that in their lifetime they could actually lose the right to birth control? And how does that message get out to resonate with them? Because 60-year-old women get it. Well, or they don't. Yes. <laughs> Good question. Thank you for that. Uh, honestly, a good reason that I wrote this book is because I don't think a lot of young women in their 20s and 30s know this story. And so I included some of this background in a way, you know, treated in a way assuming that a lot of people who would read the book wouldn't actually know that birth control used to be illegal. I think the Republicans carrying on right now has alerted them, and there have been a number of articles out, so I think people are starting to pay attention. Uh, do, do you think there are, I mean, I th imagine there may be some people in their 20s and 30s who don't believe, that even if this happens, that it will affect them. That, 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 that I think they think well, that that's the definition business of will... Well, that's the definition of 20. Well, that's true, too. But I think it, they might believe that, you know, the, the hypocrisy will continue, and they'll, they'll have access to what they need to have access to. I think that's probably true and that they don't have to worry about it. I think there will be very few 20 and 30 year olds that if this continues like <clears throat> this will actually vote Republican. They may oh, think, I think that, that's right. I think yeah. they may think, oh, it's not gonna be that bad, it's not gonna happen. Yes. Uh, hello, I'm Kimberly Sheridan of the neighborhood of Pigtown and I'm gonna start by uh, apologizing to everyone for the bluntness of this question or comment. Um, I would respectfully disagree with you that there is a racial element behind the, the, the drive to ban contraception for everybody. I think the part of it is precisely to force white women to spit out as many Caucasian little ones as possible to achieve a quote desirable unquote racial balance. Because I have read articles in which trying to frighten people because, um, well okay, the Latinos are breeding like flies and we have to keep up. I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to put it any nicer. I, th I have seen some of those articles too, and I think there is a tiny minority that is kind of channeling the kind of very old nativism and racism in America that goes back to Teddy Roosevelt, who was one of the first who said that, you know, the white race has to keep breeding or, you know, we're going to be overwhelmed by the immigrants. Uh, but I don't think that's primarily what's driving most of the people. I think it's more of this religious fundamentalism that's not necessarily racially based. Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Kate Gunterman. And um, I actually, it's similar to her comment, um, but there's a history with this shadow movement, as you call it, um, and it's not racially driven, but it does have to do with uh, cultural trauma issues. 
and so this kind of comes from a public health perspective and, and from social issues who've been researching these things. Um, there have been many instances of uh, slave labor in, in the US, and it's not just against African Americans or Asians, or we also did have um, slavery that existed with the Irish and the Scottish. So Hamden is actually one of the neighborhoods here in Baltimore where this took place. Um, but it was all white women imported from the Appalachian Mountains to work in the textile factories and the textile mills. And they were all slave laborers. They were paid very, very little indentured servants. They had to buy from the factory stores. Now, in order to survive, they wound up doing survival sex. And men from like Roland Park, which was very close by, would come and use the women. And it wound up, um, Basically, the shadow movement back then was all very up in arms. They couldn't get angry at their men. They were Their men were denying that they were using the women. Um, but they were on this campaign to save these children, to save the women. So they did an extreme like pro-life movement there. And it's still going on, because I talked to some of the 14-year-old moms, and I'm friends with some of them there. And they do talk about how they're against birth control. And they've been totally raised and ingrained with this same cultural thing. And people who are studying cultural trauma issues along these lines, because um, it happens across race, it happens across, it, it, it's usually to darker complected, but even whites of darker complexion. There's the Butterbox babies um, that have Native American and Jewish backgrounds, but from darker complexions. They wound up being slave labor, the, the women. Um, so it's kind of been a continuing pattern in a lot of ways. And this is all pre-70s and pre. Uh... Yeah, that's that's really fascinating story. Love to hear more about it. So there, you know, in basically in writing the book, you know, there's a lot of background in the United States that feeds into this. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to make a book too long. So. <laughs> um, one thing, Nancy, that I don't think we, we addressed, um, the first questioner made the point about the Catholic Church hierarchy and the bishops and, and so on. And, and I do think um, there is an obligation to try to figure out how... Uh, I mean, I, I, I just have always assumed that a lot of people found in ways to intellectualize themselves to get around that. But um, that is still a factor, isn't it? Yeah, well, in the, um, in the first chapter of the book, I quote a woman who says, you know, I don't confess I use the pill, a Catholic woman, I don't confess I use the pill because I don't consider it a sin. And according to the statistics, 98% of Catholics don't think it's a sin. And so this is really being driven by the hierarchy right. and a small number of very orthodox, you know, active Catholics and and are there relatively few Catholics in the Tea Party movement? Are there relatively few Catholics who've participated in this counter-revolution? Uh, there have been Catholics participating in the counter-revolution. I know about half the Tea Party are Protestant fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen good you know, statistics on right. where they are in the Tea Party. Okay. Next question. So related to that, Tell us who you are, please. my name is Brandy Tom Haven. I'm here from Baltimore. Um, I'm curious why you think uh, President Obama took the position he did 
on the birth control issue because I can't understand um, which political, what the political payoff is for him, especially when you're talking about an employee benefit. You mean his so compromise the position? The compromise yes. or capitulation. Yeah, I, it seems odd to me because I, I can't understand the equation when there was a rational out. You might want to just recap what that compromise was. Okay, so Obama decided, changed the original policy that would have provided birth control with no copay in your employee assurance, uh, accepted the religious liberty argument to an extent, and changed it so that the religious institutions who are employers but not actual churches, uh, that the women would still get the same <coughs> health insurance benefits, but it wouldn't, it would come through the insurance company, not through the employer. And so my view is that he actually should have made a stand and said this is a basic issue of employment law. And that, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, you know, if not millions of people who work for these institutions that don't have a primarily religious purpose. And I think he was listening to the people that, you know, I talk about in the book, the democratic sexual counter-revolutionaries who say, oh, you're going to lose Catholics if you continue down this path. I don't think Obama would have lost any voters that he hadn't already lost had he stuck to the original. I think his tendency is often to avoid a fight and not realize that the fight is going to keep going. Now, some people think he's a brilliant chess master and actually wanted this whole thing to happen with all these hearings on birth control. I don't know. I don't know. That's a little cynical, I think, to believe that yes, he wanted I, the hearings on birth control. I, I would agree. But right. some people are saying that. But, but you're, uh, he is a compromiser, or tries to be. And he may have had some advice coming from some directions that, that he was too far out on a limb. Well, apparently there was a fight in the administration between the older white Catholic men and the women in the administration. Right. Are there other questions? Rosalind, do you? Oh, I'll try to repeat it. Or oh, here comes the microphone. I'm Rosalind Fleischman. I'm from Baltimore. And I've known the family all my life, I'm happy to say. Um, it's, um, my only question is, uh, are you saying that the women fueled this discussion or because it was my understanding that after the great society movement in the 60s the republican the john birchers and everybody else in the republican party started organizing and they were the ones that started to organize at the local level they started raising money for the, particularly the south i know strong thurman uh, among others, uh, had just organized a machine to just bring in, it, bring in the money. And are you saying the women organized it or the men organized the women to organize it? No, the, the women actually organized and they only started organizing themselves around these gender and family and sex issues. And then the men discovered them and realized that they could turn this into the moral majority and the religious right. right movement. So these women were organizing five, six years before the moral majority was founded. And yes, people were organizing the Republican Party 
on the right, but they were a very small number. They didn't have enough voters to actually take over the Republican Party. It required these women. Um, many of them were fundamentalists who hadn't voted in a few decades since the Scopes trial, finally coming back into the political arena. So that Thank goes you. against the conventional wisdom, I think, that most people believe that this was organized by men. We'll take one last question. Um, um, Renee Cohen. Hi, Nancy. <laughs> Nancy Cohen. Um, I, I'm going to take issue with you in this very last um, statement about the hospitals and the insurance and the Catholic hierarchy. Um, I think he was very brilliant in what he did. Um, I happen to be one of these cynical people who think that there were some people in his administration. They knew the numbers. They know how many people and how many women in this country really are in favor of contraception. And when looking at this issue, which by the way, it came about because it's part of the ADA, the Affordable Care Act, that um, when looking at women's health, which is a whole section in the Affordable Care Act, they actually, the administration, took this section out and gave it to a body of doctors and said, okay, what should be included in the Affordable Care Act for measures for, to ensure women's health? And the issue of contraceptives being available to all women across all specters was highlighted by the medical profession. Um, I think he was very smart in, in backing down and not having to take on a fight that he didn't really need to take on, which is the Catholic hierarchy. And I've spoken to a couple of women who are on one of the large Catholic hospitals in Baltimore. Interestingly enough, and there might be some people in the room who will disagree with me, but in terms of the Catholic nuns, they think he did a perfect job. In terms of the bishops and the men in the Catholic Church, you're not going to win them over. And so he still got what he needed. It's the insurance companies that then are going to have to bear this burden. And by the way, economically, they do better. They would rather pay for contraceptives for women than have to pay for unwanted births or children who are born maybe to underprivileged people who don't have the proper prenatal care and they end up with children who need a lot of health care and costs. So I just take issue. I think that what he finally did was, in rethinking it, I think it was very prudent of him to do it that way. It's, That's all. It, it might have been, I think we'll see. I'm worried about what precedent it might set for uh, religious organizations claiming the right to opt out of other laws. That's, that's my big concern. But I concede you may be right, that it might have been a brilliant move. Nancy, isn't there an in interesting possibility that the president could get reelected, but both houses of Congress could go Republican? And then? Yeah, then we'll have another four years of gridlock. Right. Yeah, I think that it is a possibility. I, it's hard to tell. Right. Hard to tell. Nancy, thank you very much. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you. I, I just want to say one thing. I want to thank the Enoch Pratt and Dr. Hayden and Judy Cooper. Uh, it was in the stacks in this library uh, when I was doing a research paper that I really did not want to do that I discovered my love of history. And so I always have a very fond place in my heart for well, this you. particular library. Thank you.